G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Mick Lubinskis is one of the legends in the Australian startup community. With over 20 years of experience, he's been a big part of why our tech ecosystem is starting to take off. Now, Mick's about to head off to America for a few years, so we've snagged him for an entire episode talking past, present, and future and sharing his wisdom on what it takes to make a startup succeed. History and vision with Mick Lubinskis on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Braintree, the easy all-in-one payment solution for your app or website. Twista is also sponsored by Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills, Australia's experts on employee share ownership schemes. When I first got to Australia, and this was back in 2003, and I started to integrate myself by degrees into the startup community here, there was one person's name that I heard over and over and over again, Mick Lubinskis, Mick Lubinskis, Mick Lubinskis. And it wasn't super, super long before I met Mick. And I realized that, in fact, everyone had been saying exactly the right thing because where startup was happening in Australia, Mick was sitting in the middle of it. And we're going to spend the entire episode today in conversation with Mick, really, because his story is in miniature the story of Startup Land Australia. Mick Lubinskis, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you. All right, let's go all the way back. How far back does Startup Land go for you? I think if you go crazy back, it's back when my parents bought me a Commodore 64 and my thrifty dad said, why bother buying one game when you can learn to program and uh, have unlimited (laughs) games? So uh, to his credit, whilst um, I probably cried at the time, uh, that actually set me off on the in the direction of, of computers. Because the, the, the chin starts to just quiver a little yeah. bit. I can't get Pac-Man. That's right. It was it started way back in Pac-Man, Pac-Man um, Summer Games, and uh, we did eventually get some games, saving up our money. But look, that got me into sort of programming basic, and then I uh, got into IBM and just started messing around with uh, spreadsheets, databases. I started selling computers. A friend of mine, we started selling computer networks, Lantastic 6. We did installations. Oh, yeah? I, grew I remember up, that. Grew up on the Central Coast. You know, we were installing six computers in a network with one printer and a com- shared hard drive. Mm. And um, So I've, I've been in computers from a very, very young age and just loved what technology could do. And then I um, started my first company when I was 20. Well, that was when I was uh, 18 when I was selling computers. My first real t- internet startup back in uh, when I was about 22 and um, I was I built some uh, and that was 1997 okay so I had uh, a business database technology and I was actually selling it to business groups uh, around Australia uh, unfortunately the database privacy laws came out mm-hmm. and it completely actually blocked my entire business oh dear uh, so that we uh, ended up selling for what we had put into it but I look I raised a bit of money which I thought was the a, you know someone invested $25,000 in me uh, two people I in knew. a 22 year old yeah and that, I, and that's I, a nice sign of confidence I really didn't know much about anything um, I did try to get be a part of the ecosystem in Sydney it was really early days I, I, I remember uh, and internet.com sponsored the first uh, f- 
first Tuesday it was called I think first Tuesday events mm-hmm. which was a just a, a network event every uh, first Tuesday of every month um, and and I, I met um, Mike Walsh and Mike Cannon Brooks who was an, I think a 19 year old kid probably maybe younger working for internet.com um, and just started to understand that there was an ecosystem and a group there uh, and there was there was some potential well was there an ecosystem I and mean, clearly there were like-minded individuals but was there an ecosystem that we would think of it as like an ecosystem today I, I don't think so and, and I, I think reflecting on what I realize now about what the challenges we have still is that we're an intangible selling an intangible mm. <laughs> and right. and the best of us focus on the rest of the world so uh, it's very hard to put a put a put a finger on it and um, and just to, to actually see what it is. And we work in our garages and we have our heads down. We and then we jump on planes and go around the world. Mm. Uh, we're more likely to meet in uh, bars and cafes in other parts of the world and, and airport lounges, of course, mm. than in Sydney. I think for, at that stage, um, there were some really big early companies, Computer Power and uh, you know Cochlear and 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 Radiata, etc. That I think were the first big wave, um, and, and the thing I really recognise now is that entrepreneurial ecosystems grow in waves. Mm-hmm. A bunch of people start stuff, they work hard, maybe a few of them exit, they reinvest, right. then it goes exponentially. And Silicon Valley's on wave, you know, sixty-five. Israel's on wave sixteen, and and we really, I actually tracked it back a little bit. There's a guy named Neil Miller who's been a great supporter of the of the Australian ecosystem, mm-hmm. and he started a product called uh, Application Builder. I'll probably uh, badly paraphrase his history, but he had a business called Application Builder, and he sold it. And he invested in a number of early stage companies. I, I think he was an early investor in Seek and car sales and okay. uh, and realestate.com.au and then the Seek guys got some success and invested in Polonizer. Polonizer invested in Dean McAvoy. Mm. Dean McAvoy sold Spreets, invested in Blackbird, which invested in Sessions by Nick Crocker. Mm-hmm. Nick Crocker um, Sessions got sold to MyFitnessPal and now Nick Crocker is reinvesting in the industry. So the, the waves happen over and over, and I think back then um, there was we were already we were fragmented and small and outward looking, mm-hmm. um, which which said the ecosystem was much harder to hold on to. Okay, all right. So you you're doing all this stuff. You're running around. You're meeting with these people at these internet.com things, and somewhere in here you end up at Kazaa. Yeah. So. Um, as a strange turn of events, actually, I, pr- prior to Kazara, I was working for Mass Media, uh, which was run by Steve Finale, who is a mentor of Murudi and is now actually running a company through Murudi called Drive Yellow. No, okay. um, but um, Steve was um, a great entrepreneur. Um, I was working for working with Steve, and then um, a lady I worked with at Virgin Interactive got hired to run this crazy thing called Kazar. Mm. Uh, it was moved to Australia, so the whole the global operations were run out of a little office in Cremorne, huh. ne- next to Minsky's. Um, and I actually I actually had had bought a round the world ticket to go backpacking, and thought, ah. Oh, this is probably going to last about three months, so uh, I'll I'll do this and uh, make a bit of extra money, and then I'll I'll go backpacking later. And Kazar was a peer-to-peer file sharing service. Peer-to-peer, yes, exactly. So, but what the dream I was hired on was to take the power of peer-to-peer distribution mm. and turn it into uh, a content distribution network. So, so like. L- Juiced and the other ones were supposed to yeah. be. Yeah, well. well, look, I think actually what Netflix, they really wanted to be Netflix mm. and Spotify. They mm. wanted to be for all content, but mm-hmm. I think they were just way too early. 
Um, but that well, was certainly that was the, the, the content providers weren't prepared to be able to offer content and are barely no. even doing that now with Netflix and companies like that. No, I, I think it's still you know, there's massive geography uh, issues and territory issues yeah. still with content. Uh, and it really makes you think about disruption. People think about disruption being an, a moment in time, but most disruption, whilst it has does have incredibly big inflection points, yeah. it happens over a long period of time. Well, you take a look at Fairfax. I mean, this is the example. You know, you could tell that disruption was going to come maybe as long ago as 20 years ago, mm. but it's really only today that we're seeing. And th- this, there's this old line from Hemingway, you go bankrupt slowly and then you go bankrupt suddenly. Sure, right? exactly, yeah. And th- I think the same on the success side, uh, you know, that's normally a 10-year overnight success. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, And I think hindsight is, hindsight cha- the lens of hindsight changes things People, I think if I was in the position of Kodak and looking at digital, the digital camera mm. that they had in prototype, would, would I bet against a, a multi-billion dollar company against this possible future? Um, it's, uh, it is very difficult. But, it, but I mean, this is always, you know, this is the, the, dis, the innovator's dilemma, right? I mean, yeah. that's, the, that's the core of it. But isn't it always that these companies look at it as either ors rather than both ands, that they can have something that's ramping up as something is ramping down? I think that's the thing we've seen now with uh, large companies and innovation is it's not um, it's not be defensive or offensive. Um, it's uh, it's be, be defensive and offensive at the same time. And it's I mean, it's interesting because IBM is very much in this <laughs> intersection slash car crash right now and they're catching a lot of flack because they're laying off a lot of staff profits are not what they used to be when they had a basic monopoly on mainframe hardware but at the same time they have multiple revenue streams watson looks extremely encouraging and you can see this organization that is trying to disrupt itself and it was you know one of the biggest companies in the world is there any sense here and not just with ibm but these other companies are big companies ever able to truly disrupt themselves into something that's sustainable in the long term? I think it's very difficult. Uh, funnily enough, I worked for IBM straight out of university, um, and I left because they were uh, people just selling boxes of stuff. They didn't yeah. care about technology, and I loved technology to its core. So uh, I think it is very difficult the bigger the organization. Um, the way, um, like again, credit to David Thody for setting up Muru D and Tulsa Software Group is just to say this group has to operate differently. You know, we got Charlotte Yaconi from Seattle. She was ex VMware. She was a real startup technology person, uh, hiring Annie Parker out of from Telefonica, mm. bringing me in, separate building, separate brand, running in a completely different, separate way to do different things. Mm-hmm. I think that's the hardest thing. And I, mentally, I don't know how to do it. How do you do? How do? You, how does one entity do? do two very different things in very different ways and i know it sounds easy to say well why don't you just take you know 100 million bucks and and 50 people but um (laughs) you're gonna have to justify that to the board though justify to the board and it's very very difficult to the time frames are so different um what what we are comfortable with in terms of failure and learning um the this just that whole premise um, doesn't you know, mathematically doesn't make sense. Okay, so let's tie this back in yeah. because now through all of these startups, you're now starting to learn your own lessons about learning, about flirting, about failing and learning. So what are you learning? And Kazaa 
is really in an interesting case because it was essentially sued out of existence. Well, so funnily enough, um, about halfway through my life at Kazaa, the, the original guys who made it contacted us and said they wanted to launch this little voiceover IP tool. Mm. And I said, voiceover IP sucks. Uh, never works. I've tried about 10 different versions of it. It's horrible. Um, uh, but what's this one called? And they said it's called Skype. And I said, oh, that's the worst name I've ever heard. <laughs> and obviously, obviously I should have taken shares in it at the time. But yeah. um, So, uh, you know, Phil Maul, who was my co-founder of Polonizer, was the CTO of Kazaa. Mm. And, and he and I really worked very hard to to make that a, a reality. And the big thing I learned at Kazaa was um, logic doesn't make a business work. So all logic said that the music industry and movie industry should adopt peer-to-peer and distribute all the music on it and movies because uh, they would make bucket loads of money and customers would be very, very happy. But that uh, spreadsheet logic doesn't actually lead to you know rational decisions in the marketplace. So um, And also this recognition of timing, just because I'm ready for selling. I think this is one thing entrepreneurs fail to, to think about is their customers move much slowly than they do. And the industry, I think the world is only just, you know, Spotify is, is almost exactly the same as what mm. 50 other yep. versions were at the oh, time. Oh, Listen.com. One of my friends founded Listen.com, yeah. which is one of the first ones to Absolutely. do it. Absolutely. It's the same deal. And, and people always talk about first mover advantage. And I'm like, you're nuts. Like in the people who even wrote that said, wrote to a couple of years later and said, no, we're completely wrong. Um, yeah. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci with a few words about Twisted Series sponsors Braintree, code for easy online payments. Entrepreneurs around the world have used Braintree as a simple way to accept PayPal, credit cards, debit cards, and whatever's next. With a single scalable integration, you get robust fraud protection on over 130 currencies around the world, making your global expansion a snap. And using Braintree is as easy as integrating a few lines of code, getting your business up and running fast. To learn more, visit braintreepayments.com slash twista. And we're back talking to Nick Lubinskis. Okay, so you've just mentioned that you met Phil Morrill, CTO of uh, Kazaa, when you were working there. And Phil is well known to the listeners of this show because he is a regular guest when we do our news special because he can be very pithy in a yes. very good way. Yeah. And you two started Pollinizer, which was, was it essentially the first sort of incubator accelerator in startup land in Australia? I think it was the first one that had, I think it's ATP was in existence and ATPI. Mm-hmm. Um, I think ATPI had just started to do uh, incubators that were. Uh, had support and services over and above just uh, just real estate. Right. Um, we we really wanted to be even more than that. We wanted to be business partners. Right. So we were sort of halfway between a. Uh, we were much closer to being an accelerator. The the way I categorize them is an incubator invests a significant amount in small amounts of companies right. with a view that more attention will make them more successful. Where an accelerator puts a little bit into a lot of companies and plays more of the portfolio game. Okay, now what got you in, Phil, thinking that this was the right move to make? So we were, uh, I'd worked in um, just down the road from, from here in Fishburners um, for a company called Tangler, mm-hmm. and we launched it in the US, moved the team over, and I went from being um, sort of a co-founder to uh, driving, um, just being a contractor, right. and then um, I 
I picked up another contract just being basically helping early stage tech companies with their product and marketing. And Phil was um, had actually just finished with OmniDrive. I don't know whether he's ever told that that story of OmniDrive. No. Um, that probably because he'll cry a little bit and swear a lot. But um, okay. he, he sh- you should absolutely. <laughs> I'll do save it. that for yeah for I th- another time. I think it's a very interesting story. But he um, so he'd finished up with a startup that was um, in the valley, but had a horrible ending. But um, and then he um, he started working with companies. I started work- working with some companies. My I started passing work to him. He started passing work to me, and, mm. and he sent me an email one day and said, "Look, um, seems like there's a lot of people out there who really need help uh, doing this. Mm. Uh, this could be a big opportunity. Why don't we work together and start something?" So that was that was it. Really, it was we were both just. Um, I didn't have a particular startup I wanted to work with at the time. I just wanted to help as many as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found that my frame of reference was different as someone helping multiple startups. I, I, there really was a, a, a power of the commons effect of mm-hmm. of uh, cross pollinizing, which we, you know, I'll say in, in retrospect, I'll, I'll, I'll use that term, but uh, that was became really, really powerful. We started to see trends. That's where the focus thing came from. Um, we're working with a startup which was really thought that their funnel was so wide they couldn't possibly fail, but that was the reason why they were failing. Um, so that that gave me the impetus to, to for focus. So um, all right, let, no, let let let's dig in because you are known in Australia as Mr. Focus, which I ha- always laugh laugh at, and any of my friends who know me will, um, because I'm terribly not unfocused. <laughs> as um, my my phone showing um, just ridiculously, I shared it the other day showing a. Um, very large amount of unread messages and uh, <laughs> it's 61,900 unread emails but um but what i found out was that how important focus was and it, it isn't actually focus of your attention it's focus of the business mm-hmm. um and i and i want one thing i nicely validated by peter till wrote a chapter in his recent book zero to one that the goal of a startup is to build a monopoly but the smallest monopoly possible to begin with right and the minimum viable monopoly. Yeah, it really is. It's basically saying, is there is there a small amount of people who love you absolutely? Mm-hmm. And so the best way to do that is to build a product for a small amount of people because mm-hmm. then the product's better, the marketing's better, everything's better. But you know what? I, we had good advisors and actually Dave McClure told Tangler mm. in San Francisco, you guys just need more focus. You're trying to boil the ocean. You're trying to right. be a discussion technology for the whole world. And we said, well, we're really ambitious. We want, we want millions of users and it's like millions of users start with a few users who really really love you mm-hmm. and that I I couldn't listen to them because I was deep in my own startup I couldn't listen to Dave but now um, when I started actually listen to other startups tell me then it actually made sense yeah. and that actually gives me one of the one of the most amazing and hardest parts about running accelerator is bits of wisdom are only are received with a frame of reference of the where the entrepreneur is at that time and so in Startmate, I used to do my focus talk on the first day. Right. But when you start in Start Startmate or an accelerator, you think you're invincible. You're like, why is this guy telling me about focus? I'm taking on the whole world. So we, we moved. And it's all going to be great. That's right. So then we moved it to like week eight or nine. Right. And then everyone's like, ah, oh, yeah, okay. I see why I suck at that now. I see why that's not working. Because they've got a frame of reference. They've actually, right. they, you have to sometimes fail enough to actually hear the lesson. Um, and that was um, that was what one of the big things uh, Polonizer gave me, and which I'll always be appreciative of. And this is, you know, part of the essential paradox of being an entrepreneur is that you're a little crazy, mm. right? Is that you don't see reality, and that's why you're doing this, and that's why you're changing the world. Sure. And and 
And when you say focus, it's you're deflating a bit of the drive that is that the entrepreneur thinks is keeping them going. And there's the, that that's the fantasy there. And it's I understand why it doesn't work in week one and in work week nine. They're they're ready to get that kick. It is because you don't you don't um, quit your job, mortgage your house yeah. for a small dream. You don't do yeah. it to please a hundred people. Um, you do it for millions, and you change the world. But the uh, contradiction of changing the whole world and starting with one happy customer. Uh, that is really, really difficult. But um, someone said recently, great entrepreneurs are uh, astronomers and microbiologists. Mm. Uh, they've got to be able to look at the stars and they've got to go down to incredible detail. Uh, okay. And, and I find that hard. So, <laughs> okay, so we now get you and Phil and Pollinizer. And how many companies, I mean, Pollinizer has now been going, is it a decade? Eight years. So eight, eight years. Eight, February, so we, we, registered, we were incorporated on February 29th, so a leap year. Okay, so, we, so which, it is eight which, years. Which is an indicator of how crazy it was going to be. <laughs> uh, so two or eight years, depending on how you want to do maths. But, um, yeah, eight years in. And um, in terms of total companies, it's really hard to know because we, we really got, um, we were doing fast failure and lean startups and focus mm. very very early mm. so uh, it, it was hundreds of ideas that were tested and tried and only the really best ones got to sort of three months of life mm-hmm. and then only the great ones you know lived past that so whilst you know th- there, there was just dozens uh, but we knew that um, the opportunity cost of time was actually more important than the opportunity cost of money. So don't spend two years failing when you can actually learn the lessons in in three months. It's what again I saw with um, a lot of startups. They were it was it was Polonizer was started right at that point where um, it was changing from building a business for two years and then finding out if anyone sorry building a product over two years right. then finding out if anyone wanted it but then and then going to the kickstarter model of lean startup pre-selling finding out as fast as you can whether someone actually wants it right. although this is there are certain types of businesses that work well like hardware would not work well in that time frame because it just takes too damn long to turn hardware around but software SaaS, things like that are well tuned to this so but, so but Paul, kickstarter though cha- had changed that by saying okay you i mean you've got to have you more, can build crowd yeah you can crowdfund it you can pre-sell you can actually know that five thousand people want to buy this product instead of spending five million dollars to find that but out. what you don't know is whether you can man, whether you can manufacture it sure and it, this it changes the risk around so yeah. it, it brings um it brings it delays product risk but it brings uh, it, it lets you solve um, sales risk earlier yes. demand risk yeah, but yeah. execution risk it, it's really hard so it's a matter of you know which battle it's hard yeah. we all know it's hard which which risk do you want to take so uh, no no doubt all that life is easier w- one thing I think people don't recognize though is it's not a competitive advantage for you. The whole world knows the secret's out, right? <laughs> Kicks everyone who's good with hardware is doing Kickstarter. Everyone who's good with SaaS is doing lean startup and pre-selling. So yeah. uh, you still got to you still got to survive in in a world now where there's even more competition at that base level. Right. Although one of the things that I've always heard is don't worry about your competitors, just worry about making your customers happy. Yep. Exactly. I think that's right. Um, certainly in in, in innovation. I think to some degree, don't worry about competitors and don't don't worry too much about listening to your customers. Really? Yeah, I think so. It'll be, customers have a, I think, a, a aren't very good at articulating next level of value. Mm-hmm. What the customers do is different to what they say. 
There's why people... Ah, I see what you mean. So yes. I've seen a lot of people do research and go, oh, this this startup should absolutely work because I've researched it. I asked 100 people and they all said they wanted to buy it right. and then they launched the product and no one does. Mm. And it's the difference between... So actual real data of use... Uh, is can very different, very different from intentions. Uh, and again, customers aren't. They're sl- they're typically slow adopting, and a lot of products now. If you describe them in advance, mm. no one would have used them. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of products that are like that. They would say, "I don't need that product." Right. There's no one who'd be well, probably a lot of people today saying, "Facebook, why do I need Facebook?" And it's like, well, you know, you only know it after the fact. So, so your grandmother can find out what you've been up to. Exactly. Photos of the grannies, grandkids, grandma. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. And as you probably know, a few episodes back, Twista spent an hour talking to Peter Dunn and Toby Eggleston of Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills. They're the folks who helped the federal government draft the new laws around employee share ownership schemes. And they did a great job on that show. I invite you over to our Tumblr and give it a listen if you haven't already. Now, Peter and Toby are experts in this area. This is an area of great importance for every startup because employee share schemes are how you attract and hold on to the best talent. So if you'd like to set up your own employee share scheme, visit Greenwood's website at www.greenwoods.com.au or Herbert Smith Freehills website at www.herbertsmithfreehills.com. And we're back talking to Mick Lubinskis. So fairly early on in Polonizer, I don't know what's in your second or third year, was it you had a very big... Uh, liquidity event with Spreets. Yeah. So, and it, look, it's really worthwhile telling the history of it because I think it's, it says a lot about the industry as well. I actually met Dean, five hundred minutes from Fishburners at a at a early uh, industry event mm-hmm. that um, Tangler sponsored called um, Stir, which was basically we stole from San Francisco, which is basic a networking event. We ran these half baked um, ideas uh, competitions and we had drinks and. Um, I met this guy called Dean McAvoy who was running Booking Angel um, and I got to know him. Um, he approached uh, he approached us at Polonizer and said, look, I've got got this product. I finally got this big sale, but there's a, about 20K of dev to do. I'm completely out of money. Uh, do it and I'll give you some equity. And we had a dev team available. I really, really liked Dean. The contract looked good. It was it was really worth a crack. Mm-hmm. So, and it was what, what we wanted we wanted to do at Polonizer was always to have um, some capacity to try crazy stuff. Right. Um, at the end, it didn't work out very well. It didn't work out with the, the customer, didn't have enough throughput. And basically, um, one day over a bottle of red, Phil and Dean uh, lamented about their... Um, about Booking Angel not working, mm-hmm. and and then they Dean said, you know what? But one of my advisors in the US said, hey, this really this thing's taking off called Groupon. <laughs> Maybe we should give it a crack. Right. And seriously, before the bottle was finished, I think they said, you know, well, Dean, you've done restaurants, you've got some technology. Polonizer's got now got this team available. Why don't we do it? Mm-hmm. And they pitched it to me the next day, and I said, guys, we've just come off a, a miss. If we're going to do it, it's got to go fast. Like. I, I said that I How said, fast? What, what did you set for them? So I set a goal. I said I it needs to make ten thousand dollars within twelve weeks. Okay. Um, Thirty one days later, 
we launched the product and to talk about so, so you've only got eight weeks left on the clock at eight this weeks point. left on the clock so th- this is this was the in terms of the timing one, one thing i love um i won't swear but someone um uh, when we sold spreet someone wrote and we put it up on our blog someone wrote um you just got lucky and i was like screw you buddy let me tell you the 15 things we did to be lucky. Yeah. You know, we built a relationship with Chris Hitchin from Get Price, um, who ended up being one of the guys who who gave us the advisor and um, gave us the investor. Mm. Um, I built a relationship with Dean McAvoy over 10 years and, and mm. supported him in Booking Angel. Mm. We built a team in great people like uh, Fleur Fletcher and Oliver Maruda, um, John Tyson, who built the technology and drove it. Mm. Uh, we backed it with no money for a long period of time. Like... It was so insulting to be like to call that just luck. Yeah, but um, you know, jealousy and envy and all of that, sure. right? You know. So, uh, but the, the beauty, the beautiful thing was that the luck was in our favor. Was that after two years of Polonizer, we'd learned so much trying startups, working with startups, right. trying new processes, new things. And this was again, this was pre lean startup. Right. But we and we said, okay, here's an opportunity. We've got an entrepreneur. A model that works, an open market, and twelve weeks. Mm-hmm. Let's let's do it pure and go for it. So it was so brutal. I remember launching on. It was actually Dean's birthday. <laughs> we could sell vouchers, but we couldn't send them. <laughs> we like we had about forty percent of the technology we needed to run the platform finished, and it was. And you were live. And we were like, <laughs> well, w- why why bother s- sending vouchers if you can't sell any? Right. So we'll go sell some. And the first one we did was... I mean, I like the logic. It's still frightening. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, it's like... And again, in terms of lessons learned again, Dean was... You could tell Dean was so hungry. He was like, I'm not taking seven years on this one. I'm going hard. Mm-hmm. And the next day, he pre-sold about six vouchers. Mm-hmm. And we had no technology, no company, anything. So he was just got to work straight away. And... Um, and the first voucher, I think, was for the restaurant underneath us. They gave us like a $10 drinks voucher. <laughs> it was seriously about eight meters away from Polonizer at the time. And But Dean sold it in. We launched it and we sold a couple hundred bucks worth of vouchers. We're like, okay. We, we started to learn the levers of this business. And this was another big lesson for me was even – this is how startups, how hard startups are – Seeing Groupon, mm. we could actually act, see their contracts, see how they operated, use them, be a customer, be a supplier, mm-hmm. and still there was like 85% of the bit knowing how to run the business still had to be learned right. by doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm like, how hard are startups? That's when there's a working model right, at, right in, our, in our hands and still we've got to learn how to do yeah, it. Yeah, so but it's like an iceberg, right? There's 10% that's visible and then there's another 90% that's absolutely. sitting underneath. Absolutely. And people be like, why would someone buy, buy um, spreets? For that amount of money, it's like because someone appreciates the iceberg. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Yahoo, Rowan Lund at Yahoo was like, I get the iceberg, man. I get that we can do all this other stuff, but you know what's under the water. Yeah. That's why it was heavily, heavily valued. All right. So that's, so you have that wonderful liquidity event, which, you know, put a bunch of people on the map. Again, started that cascade, that, that sort of paying it forward mm. of investment and things like this. And, you stayed on with Polonizer, but then you migrated over to Morudi. And we've already had Annie on the show talking about what brought Morudi together. What brought you to Morudi? Yeah, interestingly. So um, I have um, such 
a love of technology but a, a drive for change it it makes a lot of things hard so just be very glad you're not married to me my wife i love you dearly and she loves me knows who i am but she knows that i'm driven for change right. so uh, after six years at pollinizer uh, Phil and I had been co-founders, co-CEOs the entire time, mm-hmm. and it was really clear that for Polonizer to take things to the next level, um, the two visions that Phil and I that were driving us at the time, um, they were different enough that it would have to be one or the other. Okay. And I really supported Phil in do- doing it, and he's just done amazingly with Polonizer now. I'm just immensely proud of him and thankful. He's just got a work eth- ethic like a mm. like a bunch of diesel trains. So. Um, uh, so I um, took um, stepped out of Polonizer. Uh, I spent three months actually trying to set up an industry group here in Sydney to drive the ecosystem to the next level. Uh, I went and worked with a couple of Which startups. Which is now kind of happening, but might have been too early at that time. I, I think it was. Most of the big players were, were, were just too busy on their own stuff. Yeah, yeah. And timing was, again, timing is everything. And then I um, really, um, luckily, through um, Lance Kalish, got invited to Israel. Mm-hmm. And I thought, um, I'll go to Israel. I really always wanted to go and see the ecosystem there. So uh, I went to Israel and uh, a couple of things struck me about it. One was every single person, I met, we kept meeting people in government roles and they were like, yeah, he, these are the three startups I built, you know, two $100 million and billion dollars. Every single person running a government program for entrepreneurialism was a ex-entrepreneur. Right. And one of them actually said to me, well, you know, we do our military service at 19, and then after two or three exits, we do our government service again, <laughs> helping the ecosystem. You're like, how, fab- <laughs> how fabulous is that? Yes. That's amazing. Yes. So I thought that was great. That was really impressive. And the other thing I saw was they are um, globally minded, so they all... Um, the well, two, it's what, four million people in Israel or five million. It's a it's, small market. It's, it's it's eight million, but it's the size of um, so it's double the size of Sydney in population and um, and actual size, yeah. the physical size. So, um, but the interesting, the guys from Outbrain told this great story. Firstly, they said, um, yeah, we met. Uh, I was the um, commanding officer of a of an attack boat, um, and he was my first lieutenant. Um, so, and we we had about seven skirmishes to get like a you know. They actually went to war together, mm-hmm. and they said, oh, and we left, and um, we decided to start a company, and I started, um, we, I think he said that we tossed a coin, uh, I lost, so I started to stay home and um, code a product, and uh, he jumped on a plane to America and sold the product, um, and I thought that was just incredible how their first thought was number one to go and sell, but also to go and sell in a big market, mm-hmm. and when I got back to Australia, I looked at it looked at the industry um, and I saw that we were this middle-sized, sorry, big country with a small market. Right. And that was actually structurally hurting us because it feels it feels good enough to stay home and build a business. I mean, well, is this why Zero has come out of New Zealand, let's say? Because, again, you know, that's – and they're smaller than sure. Israel. So, absolutely. And look, no capital gains tax. I think that's why Peter Thiel's there. But um, it's um, – uh. It's um, absolutely no one in New Zealand says, "Look, I just want to build a, a t- <laughs> no. ten million dollar business in New Zealand over no. a few years, then I'll go global." Yeah. They go global first. New Zealand is is by far, I think, stronger at that by being born global. And I don't want every company to be born global. I just want twice as many as there is now, and that would completely change the game. You're listening to this week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. <laughs> Hi, this is Mark Pesci. As you know, 
we post a lot of articles and videos and photos of our guests on our Tumblr. It's at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. You're going to find lots more there, including links to all of the previous episodes, all the stuff about employee share ownership schemes. There's just a bunch of really great stuff there. So go give it a visit at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And we're back with Mick Lubinskis, who was in Israel when we left him. I was in Israel and understanding the differences of the ecosystem there in Australia. The other thing I saw in in Israel uh, was these massive companies who were, I think similar to our conversation before, were able to operate at two speeds. Uh, RSA, Mm. um, IBM, Microsoft, all these huge companies... Mm -hmm had these garages mm. which were... Oh, Intel as well. In Intel, um, were amazingly, authentically startup. Yeah. And I was just like... And it made me also think about Australia, how one of the issues of being a small market is we have banks, telcos and mining companies... Mm-hmm. Um, who That's are, the economy right there. I'm sorry, there's three groups. Who are pro- primarily um, domestically focused. Right. I mean, I know mining companies export their product, but they're not... They're not really, um, you know, global businesses. Mm. And then you have branch offices of internationals. So who here is thinking about going global in Australia? Not many people. And who here is operating at that two speed of um, big and fast? Mm -hmm. So um, I came back and I was stewing over these things. And then um, Charlotte Yacani from Telstra said, hey, Mick, you know what? I think, you know, we'd done a Telstra, I'm sorry, Polonizer done a hackathon Mm -hmm. with Telstra and I liked a lot of the people there, uh, Kate McKenzie and um, Gerd Schenkel. And um, they said, you know, we want to run an accelerator. And at first, my thought was, I don't know if Telstra's going to be able to pull this off because... Mm. Well, that was my thought when I heard about it. I was like, wait. Yeah. I mean, mind you, when you came on board, I was like... All right. Either he's he's smoking the crack, sure. or there's that, or they're actually going to do this. Yeah, and, and that was my my concern is it, were they able to do it properly? Because I think um, it is difficult to do because oh, particularly uh, because Telstra's not known as being agile. That's right. Um, it's it's not. It's a big domestic telco, mm. and it's a massive massive company. Like the entire Australian tech industry. Uh, is still smaller than Telstra, yes, right? And probably will be for some time well, to come. Some time. But I, I really respected that they wanted to do it. They wanted to do it authentically. Yeah. They and they did all the right things. You know, they looked at what Telefonica would do with Waira, mm-hmm. and not only borrowed and pinched any Parker, right. which was a very smart move. They realised it has to be a separate brand, a separate building, a separate group, mm-hmm. incentivised differently, run differently, and they did it fast, so they didn't overthink it. So they didn't sort of try to sub-brand it, call it Telstra Startups or anything like that. Right, right. Which means that, you know, the Muradi can... We can be Muradi and be different and invest in, like, what we've got now is underwater drone businesses and and space. And we've had the underwater drone folks on this oh, show. Abyss Solutions. Yes. Uh, the, the incredible diversity. I mean, everyone says, oh, so they've got... In, they invest in Telstra-like things. No, these are... Untelstra-like things. Right. That's what makes Muradi amazing, and that's why Telstra wants to do it. It's a license for them to do really innovative, on the edge, uh, different stuff, which is driving innovation and entrepreneurship through Telstra. Okay, but hey, you've got this. You set this up. It's going great guns, and now you're leaving. Now I'm leaving. What the, what the I, heck? I, I said I like change. I said I like change, so I'm not. I'm not lying there. I, I actually think it's the right time for me and my family mm. uh, but it's also the right time for Muradi and also the right time for the ecosystem I've helped more than 20 companies move overseas and go global right. and 
uh, I've been the guy staying here, and whilst I've travelled a lot, it's been ten years. My last time living overseas was in uh, with was with a family in Arusha, Tanzania. Uh, mm. So it's a it's a while since I've had a a uh, had a cha- major chain of scenery. So that's important for me. Mm-hmm. But also. Um, by the end of next year, the Murudi portfolio could be over 100 companies. Right. And the thing that I'm wrestling with right now is we have 10 companies in the program, 34 companies in the alumni mm. who need my help. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this move is two, twofold for Murudi. One is to allow me to focus my time and attention on the alumni. Mm-hmm. But also, we've been flying into China, flying into USA, right. flying into Europe and back. Um, we've got to start building serious networks there right. um, because they are big and getting bigger. And and this is also, it's one of the things that we don't have here in Australia. You think, I mean, it's funny because people have come to me because I do have networks in Silicon Valley and you would want people here to have the deepest possible networks there. Yeah, you do, absolutely. And, and to be honest, those networks are actually... Uh, I know the, the government's launching landing pads, but mm. th- those networks certainly in the U.S. are really coming together. There's a there's a group run by Elia Bazanes, uh, Patrick Collins, Kate Kendall, mm-hmm. and uh, Jeff McQueen and Faden Stahl, who's actually just just moved back. And Elia went over what eight years ago? Yeah, I think almost. Uh, yeah, it was it was just after Polonizer got started yeah, actually. Like seven so eight years ago, I remember years right? Because because Elia established Silicon Beach groups, mm. and I started the Silicon Beach drinks. Uh, accidentally, um, and uh, which sounds bad, but um, so that ecosystem, everyone's been again working really, really hard. But that uh, community in the valley has been growing and mm-hmm. is, is getting really organised with the Aussie founders. I'm actually okay, uh, two days from now, I'll be having lunch with the Aussie founders in the, in San Francisco. Isn't there a danger that if we build these links, it just becomes a siphon of our best talent? I, I don't think so. And um, one thing that's definitely changed in the valley is um, they used to be, you know, can I, um, you know who have you got in your dev team and right. now it's where is your dev team right. because hiring dev team in the valley with the unicorns with hundreds of millions of dollars is almost impossible so people have their teams in Brazil Ukraine Philippines and in Australia so with the R&D offset and we're not the cheap option on any of those lists R&D offset makes us okay right um, but the quality of, the, of our yeah. graduates is really really good out yeah. of all the universities so I think that balances that out um, my main thing is develop here sell globally right. so if we get that balance right I don't want to talk about raising capital I want to talk about building great products and selling them into big markets so does that mean that again as the smart country the dev and the product dev will be happening here but the sales arm might be happening in the valley or might be happening in shanghai or might be happening in singapore or yeah it's a little bit case by case look at some of the big successes like atlassian campaign monitor freelancer and big commerce they were actually they sold themselves Global and they spread. Right. They, no, no big sales force to start with. Not enterprise sales products. So, they um, were able to be started here and grown globally, m- most fairly remotely. They all have offices around the world now. But, mm-hmm. um, but there, it'll be case by case. Uh, you know, something like um, Abyss needs to have people on the ground. Um, but the other products um, like Cube Rider may be absolutely running astray completely. But um, so I, I think. Learning how to do global sales. Hmm. Um, my view is always that you can't hire the salesman until you, the first salesperson in your team, until you've done the first ten sales. You've got to learn how to do it. Right. Um, so I think the same with big markets. So. Okay. What does you know? Let's say you're there a couple of years. What does success start to look like for you around this? What are your goals for yourself in this position? 
So I'd really like to um, increase that flow of uh, products getting into big markets. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really saw it. Uh, I'll, I'll tell, keep telling with the Abyss story. They had a great um, customer here in, in, in Australia and they could at that point build a $10 million business in Australia fairly easily right. or they could pick up, go on a plane and go to China or the US and build a $100 million business. And... But if they stay in Australia for three years and then look globally, it'll be too late. I think it'll be probably too late. So um, I'm trying to make it easier for people to, regardless of your kind of business, to actually go and get customers in a big market. Mm-hmm. That was my rant and rave I did at um, and all my events you'll hear is go global but stay focused. And what I'm saying is go f- build a small product for one customer but do it in a big market. If you're going to go to all the hard work of getting a customer really happy with what you're doing, if you're doing a big market, they're they're worth a hundred times more than a customer in Australia, just because we've got a small market. All right, final question. You have seen it all, twenty years. If you could, I'm giving you a magic wand, and you can now fix anything you like about the ecosystem in Australia. What would you What would you change? Yeah, that's a tough question. I actually think we need, um, in every capital city, a two by two block radius, which is a hundred percent tech. Mm-hmm. So uh, we have. My view is, if the entire tech industry in Australia was in one city, mm-hmm. and I don't care if it's Broome, <laughs> it would be. It that possibly, would be interesting. It would certainly be top ten by now, easily. Yeah. The problem is we've got we're all spread out, and even within cities we're spread out. Mm-hmm. I have to trek from Polonizer to Fishburners to Murudi to start my ATP. It, proximity actually matters for the start of startups. Why don't I see you more often, Mark? Yeah. Why don't we yeah. run into each other more? What, like well, last time we ran into each other, we were in Brisbane. That's right. So, um, so I think density mm-hmm. um, leads to uh, creates gravity, and then that gravity will attract a whole bunch more um, uh, advisors and investors who have global experience Mm -hmm. and that can be the catalyst to give us some exponential growth. Mick, this has been a tremendous set of insights on behalf of all the listeners. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been fun. Before we went into the recording studio to record this episode, Mick and I were trading notes about Abyss Solutions, and of course Abyss Solutions has been on this show. It's a company that both Mick and I have had an opportunity to mentor, and it's always interesting, we realized, mentoring folks who haven't done a startup before. Because most of what you do when you're mentoring folks who haven't done a startup before is to prevent them from making the mistakes that you made. And it's only when you do that that you realize how much you yourself have learned and how much you have to give. Now, Australia has been very lucky that Mick has been sharing what he's learned for almost 20 years. And Twista wishes him every success as he starts out on his American venture. Big thanks to Twister sponsors Braintree and Greenwoods and Herbert Smith Freehills. Their support is making this podcast possible. Thanks to Felix Wormuth and AnalogCabin.net for his hard work crafting a podcast that's always a joy to listen to. Thanks to Mick once again 
for making the time to come onto the show. Now, we're going to be back after a little break at the start of August, and we're going to kick off the second half of Series 4 with some amazing guests. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>